tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. David Cummings, and now it's dark. We welcome you to the premiere episode of our 15th season. Thanks for joining us. A new season, such excitement. As always, we thank our composer, Brandon Boone, and senior producer, Phil Mykolski, for crafting this season's musical theme, along with Jeff Clement's musical stylings. You could say they're the linchpin of this season's sound. And we have two special guests joining us this episode. Curtis Connor is a commentary YouTuber and stand-up comedian, and fellow Canadian. Between Curtis and me, we have well over two and a half million YouTube subscribers. Uh, There's no need to figure out who has 99.9% of those subscribers. All that matters is we combine for quite a few. We welcome you to the show, Curtis. And Andrew Tate of the Let's Not Meet podcast joins us again after first being with us during the new decade. If you're not already listening to Let's Not Meet, you should check out their true horror stories written by those that made it out alive. First-person accounts narrated and produced in an anthology of terror and suspense. Thanks for the return visit, Andrew. And so, a new season awaits. Are you ready? Then let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we join a man as he heads down to the basement of his apartment building. But don't worry, this isn't one of those haunted basements. There's nothing spooky below the ground. But in this tale, shared with us by author Sam Hasem, that doesn't mean the journey down won't be fraught with peril. Performing this tale are Joe Sheary and Andy Cresswell. So don't just worry about the destination, consider the dangers on the way. At least if you're traveling down in a certain metal box. That is to say, you're riding the lift. were scrawled onto the lift's metal panel. Tiny black words. I had to squint to make them out. Press minus one three times to unlock the hidden floor. I snorted. The lift in my block of flats isn't exactly short of graffiti, but for the most part it isn't worth a second look. Swear words, phone numbers, bulbous, badly drawn cocks, the kind of stuff bored teenagers scratch onto any available surface to amuse themselves. 
At least this new edition was original. I set down my two rubbish bags and pressed minus one. Hesitated with my finger hovering over the button. I don't know if I did what I did next in tribute to the graffiti's mystery author or simply because I had a few post-work beers and felt the urge. Whatever the reason, I barely gave it any thought at all. I pushed the button twice more. It might have been the worst mistake I've ever made. The lift judded to life. I flicked my gaze up to the digital display above the sliding metal doors, watching the numbers count down from seven, six, five, four. I've always hated taking the bins out. Yes, I know. Nobody enjoys doing it, like cleaning or washing up. It's one of those chores that's pretty hard to get excited by. But something about the block of flats I live in makes the job even worse. It's not like being in a house where you can wander down the garden and pop your rubbish outside the back gate. Taking the bins out in my flat means going down to the bin room. Down to the basement. Let me set the scene for you. The bin room is a tiny claustrophobic box that's accessed through a sealed door in my building's lower car park. The reason it's sealed is because of the smell. The room stinks. I don't just mean an, oh dear, this is an unpleasant kind of way. I mean, the place is fucking rotten. Black mold covers the ceiling. Rat boxes hug the walls. There are about eight skips in there, and although half of them are meant to be used for recycling, nobody recycles. Even I don't. I tried at first, but it was like fighting a losing battle. Every skip is filled to the brim with black bin bags, half of which are split and spilling their contents all over the floor. I really hope God is reserving a spot in heaven for the people who empty that room every week, because let me tell you, those poor bastards deserve it. Three, two, one. By this point, I'd half forgotten about the graffiti's instructions. I was already mentally holding my breath. I reached down and gripped the two rubbish bags, ready to take the plunge. Zero. Minus one. For a moment, the display hovered on minus one without doing anything. I was having visions of being forced to use the emergency button to get the building management to come and rescue me when the thing finally lumbered to a stop. The door slid open. Oh, shame. No hidden floor after all. I stepped out into the little no man's land that constitutes the basement foyer. God, the place is grim. Stained carpet, damp walls, more graffiti marks mingling with patches of mold that creep down from the ceiling like dead flowers. Holding my breath, I walked to the left, dumped one of my rubbish bags down, and hit the door release button. Then, I scooped the bag back up and made my way to the lower car park. Hearing my footsteps echo around the deserted space, I was suddenly reminded of the other reason I don't like doing the bins. It's kind of creepy down there. The basement level of my building is dark, no matter what time of day it is. 
There never seems to be anyone around. The size of the space has a weird effect on sounds too. Doors shutting, the scrape of shoes over concrete. Every noise has a light reverberation as though it's being doubled. Walking around down there, it's all too easy to imagine you're being followed. In the interests of getting the job done quickly, I adopted my usual routine. I held my breath, opened the door to the bin room with one hand and slung the rubbish bags through it without stepping one foot inside. The noise of the bags crashing down among the rest of the crap in there made me flinch. It sounded far too loud in the stillness. Dusting my hands off, I shut the door to the bin room and quickly made my way back across the car park. My footsteps echoed in silence. A light breeze chilled my skin. I fumbled my building pass out of my pocket and swiped it against the building foyer. Then half jogged across the lobby area to push the lift button. The door of the lower car park snicked shut behind me. I shivered, doing my best not to look at the mould on the ceiling. I stared hard at the doors of the lift, willing them to open, trying to ignore the smell. After what seemed like a full minute, the familiar whirring noise started up again. The metal doors creaked, then began to slide apart. There was a man in the lift. He wore a dark suit and smart black shoes. I couldn't tell how old he was. Couldn't tell anything about what he looked like. In fact, because he wasn't facing me. He was standing in the far corner of the lift, facing the wall, not moving, completely silent. Now, I've seen a whole range of horror films in my 30 odd years, but for some reason, the sight of that man disturbed me more than any of them put together. I think it was two things. The shock of seeing someone in the lift at all so soon after I'd left it, coupled with the fact that this guy was obviously fucking cracked. He had to be, or so drunk he could barely stand. I took a step towards the lift. The man didn't move, and the more I stared at him, the more my mind began to dismiss the drunk theory. The guy didn't look like he'd been drinking. He wasn't slouched or leaning against the wall in the way that drunk people do. He was stood rigid, his back completely straight, his head level. You okay, mate? I regretted the words as soon as they were out. They were far too loud in the silence of the basement. I almost flinched at the sound of them. I watched the man's back closely. I expected some kind of reaction from him when I spoke to him, but there was none, nothing. He stayed in exactly the same position as before, facing the corner of the lift, unmoving. It was at this point that I made my second biggest mistake. I walked into the lift with him and pressed the button of my floor. I still don't understand why I did it. What the fuck was I thinking? I could have climbed the stairs instead. That's what I should have done. But for some reason, 
Possibly because I live so high up in the building. Maybe because I didn't want to admit how freaked out I was. I stepped in. The man remained where he was. The doors rolled shut. I felt my heartbeat pick up as the lift began its slow climb. The space was cramped and I stood as far away from the strange man as I could. My back pressed against the control panel. One eye on him, one eye on the digital display above the lift's doors. Zero. One. Two. My hands were slick with sweat. The only sound in the lift was the gentle whir of the mechanism. My heart thumped in my chest. I kept flicking my gaze between the doors and the stranger, willing the lift to hurry, but it seemed to be taking far longer than usual. Three, four, five. It was as the lift hit the sixth floor that I heard it. The noise. At first, I thought it was the lift's mechanism making the sound. But a few moments later, I realized I was wrong. It was coming from the direction of my fellow passenger. I stared at him, my heartbeat punching my chest. That's when I saw movement, not from his body. That remained completely still, but from the lower half of his head. I couldn't see his face, but from my angle, I could just make out the side of his jaw. It twitched back and forth rapidly. The man was whispering under his breath. I bit my lip to stop myself crying out. Heat prickled every inch of my skin as the lift juddered and whirred. The man's whisperings grew louder. It sounded like he was muttering a string of nonsense sounds. The same noises over and over again in a never-ending loop. I shuffled as close to the lift's entrance as I could. The mechanism whirred and clanked, but the doors remained shut. Come on, for fuck's sakes. My heartbeat was up in my neck now, a relentless drumbeat. The man's whispering grew louder. He started putting more emphasis on certain sounds, almost spitting. A fraction of a second before the doors opened, I finally made out what he was saying. It sent a chill down the length of my back. That one phrase, spoken so fast again and again, that the words blurred together. What's done can't be undone. The doors rumbled open behind me. I hurried from the lift. Behind me, the man's whispering stopped. When I glanced back once before I rounded the corner, he was standing in exactly the same position, facing the corner of the lift, his body still. I drank a lot that night. After making sure my front door was locked, as well as each of the windows, I went to the fridge and scooped out all the beers I could find. Then I sat in front of the TV and I knocked them back one after the other. By the time I finally stumbled into my room, throwing my clothes in a pile on the floor and passing out on the bed, it was well after midnight. I woke a short while later. I must have been having a nightmare. 
because I drag myself out to sleep in that horrible, lurching way you do after a bad dream. You know, when it feels like you've been holding your breath and you're finally coming out for air. I lay on my side in my bed, panting in the darkness. My mouth felt like cotton. The room was silent around me. I reached out a hand towards my bedside table, fumbling in the darkness until I finally found the lamp. I flicked the switch. Weak yellow light bathed the room. It was empty. I saw the familiar shapes of my furniture in the gloom, but nothing else. I let out a breath I hadn't realized I'd been holding. Of course the room was empty. I'd had a nightmare, that was all. That was what had woken me up. You're working yourself up over nothing, acting like you're 10 years old again. Well, no matter what I said to myself, what my rational mind knew to be true, I couldn't shake the feeling of unease in my stomach. I turned over and lay on my back, trying to clear my mind. It wasn't easy. My ears suddenly seemed to have become sensitive to every tiny noise in the flat. The drip of the tap in the kitchen, the creak of the pipes behind the walls, the faint hum of traffic drifting in from the road outside. And something else too. A soft, distant humming sound, almost like a whisper. Don't, don't do it. But lying in the twilight of my room, it seemed my mind had other ideas. The more I tried to relax, the more it kept conjuring images from my encounter in the lift. The metal doors sliding back, the man in the suit, the jaws twitching back and forth as he whispered the same words over and over. What's done can't be undone. I swung my legs out of bed. If my mind was going to refuse to play ball, I wasn't going to indulge it. No way. I'd get up, stretch my legs, and go get myself a glass of water. I might not be able to force myself to relax, but I could at least take care of my dry mouth. I padded barefoot across the floor. The light from my bedside lamp faded beside me as I entered the hall. The plink, plink, plink from the tap grew louder. Up ahead I could see the kitchen door a faint outline in the darkness. My feet whispered across the carpet, and there was another sound too, the same noise I heard a moment earlier lying in bed. As I continued down the hall, I realized this was growing louder, a soft humming, a quiet noise that was so terribly close to the whisper that was coming from the kitchen. For a moment, I had the urge to go back, to simply retreat to the lamp-lit glow of my bedroom. But I dismissed it. I wasn't going to let fear get the better of me. Ignoring the growing unease in my stomach, I walked through the kitchen door and flipped on the light. And I let out another big, long breath. The humming noise was coming from the fridge. That was all. It wasn't a whisper at all. It was only the soft whir of my fridge's compressor. I should have recognized the sound as soon as I heard it. Shaking my head, I grabbed the glass from the cupboard, filled it up at the sink and downed the contents in one. 
Then I refilled it one more time and flipped the kitchen light off. Heading back towards the glow of my bedroom, I started feeling tired again. My mind was beginning to slow down. I'd had a scare earlier, that was true. An odd encounter with some weirdo that would, in all likelihood, have freaked anyone out. But now, it was time to let it go. I had work the following day, and I didn't need to be losing any more sleep over nothing. I walked back through the door of my bedroom, rubbing my eyes. My foot knocked into the pile of clothes I'd left on the floor the night before. I opened my eyes, planning to kick them to one side, and saw a shape in my peripheral vision. The man from the lift stood in the corner of my room. In the lamp's weak glow, he was nothing more than a shadow, a dark shape standing stationary among the other dark shapes, facing the wall, completely still, just like before. The glass of water slipped from my hand. I heard it smashing onto the floor, but the noise seemed to come from a long way away. Cold liquid splattered my legs, and the sensation cut through the worst of my shock. I turned to run. As I twisted towards the door, my feet tangled in the pile of clothes, and I went down hard on the carpet. My knee flared with agony. I pushed myself back up, ignoring the pain, and sprinted from the room as fast as I could. I caught one final glimpse of the man before I skidded into the hallway and on my way to the front door. He was still frozen in the exact same position. A living statue. I don't really know what my plan was. As I wrenched open the latch on my front door and fled into the hallway only wearing my boxer shorts, I had nothing but terror in my head. My feet carried me away from the flat, away from the stranger in my bedroom, and I let them. But my instinct must have been working on some level. Less than 30 seconds after fleeing from my bedroom, I found myself standing in front of the lift, my finger hammering repeatedly on the pool button. And for once, the lift didn't have to drag itself up from the ground floor. The doors opened straight away. I think at that point, I was only trying to get as far away from the silent man as I could. My finger darted towards the zero button on the metal panel, but at the last minute, I stopped myself. It was the graffiti that did it. The writing was still there, those familiar, tiny black letters. But the words had changed. It was subtle, but I noticed it straight away. Now, instead of reading, press minus one three times to unlock the hidden floor. The words read, press minus one three times to seal the hidden floor. My eyes lingered on the words for a second, making certain. Then I punched the button so hard my finger hurt three times. I shut my eyes and prayed. All of this happened last night. The trip to the bin, the man in the lift, the same man standing silently in my room. The images won't leave my head. The fear hasn't gone away either. 
I'd love to say it's all over now, but I can tell you this story safe in the knowledge that my ordeal has finished. But I can't say that. I'd only be lying to myself. At first, I thought the graffiti instructions had put things back to normal. I thought I'd fixed things. I took the stairs from the basement up to the ground floor lobby of my block of flats, then waited there in my boxes until the cold numbed the worst of my terror. Eventually, I crept back upstairs. The door to my flat was wide open, just as I'd left it. The hall beyond was dark. I tiptoed along it, the fear seeping back into me like cold water, telling myself over and over again that everything would be okay now. I'd followed the instructions after all. The man would be gone. And he was. I rounded the corner of my bedroom, skin coated in goosebumps, and there was nobody there. The stranger had left. Or at least, I thought he'd left. Now, sitting in my flat, as the sky outside begins to lose its light, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure at all. I keep thinking I've caught glimpses of him, see? It's been happening over and over again throughout the day. Everywhere I go, I see him. In the distant, on the street. In the crowds. On my commute to work this morning, standing in the far end of the train carriage. I see him in reflections too, just quick glimpses there and then gone again. I know how that sounds, but it's true. It's like his shadow's following me. In the bathroom mirror this morning as I was getting ready for work. In the windows of cars passing me in the street. As I bent down to wash my hands in the sink at lunchtime, I even thought I saw a glimpse of him in the shining metal tap. I span around, heart jackhammering in my chest, but there was nobody there. And then there are the whispers. His whispers. At various points in the day, I found myself sitting still, mind wandering. It's like I hear them out of nowhere. That same phrase again and again, hissing in my ear. What's done can't be undone. 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 More and more, I find myself suspecting that there might be some truth to that. I think that I may have triggered something when I pressed the button in the lift yesterday, tapped into some unimaginable gateway that I have no way of shutting. The thing that really did it, the final thing that made me certain that I haven't seen the last of the whispering stranger, was what I found in the lift when I returned home from work. What had happened to the graffiti on the metal control panel? The words from yesterday were still there, the instructions for sealing the hidden floor, but now they'd been crossed out, scribbled over in red pen, and whoever had done it had added the following shaky message. The doors cannot be sealed until all passengers are inside. Back when I was a little kid, I'd sometimes wake in the middle of the night. I wouldn't be able to get back to sleep again. 
I'd lie with my eyes open, staring into the never-ending darkness, and I'd imagine that every shadow was a monster out to get me. But now, I don't have to imagine. Now, I don't need my mind to twist innocuous shapes into ghosts and demons. Because this monster is real, and I have a feeling he'll be back to visit me again soon. If you're one of us who's over 35, then there's a lot about modern-day internet culture that can seem baffling. Unboxing videos, lip-syncing, channels on YouTube dedicated to slime, and e-boys. Hmm, I don't have a clue what that means. You neither? Well, don't worry. In our next tale, shared with us by author Olivia White, we're given an education on the bizarre specimen that is the e-boy and treated to the sinister truth behind one such individual. Performing this tale are special guest stars Curtis Connor and Andrew Tate, alongside Jessica McAvoy and Atticus Jackson. So let's go on a trip to a portion of the internet that's best avoided, unless you want to be stuck there for an eternity. I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm a fairly well-known YouTuber. I know, I know. If you're not familiar with the culture, you've probably seen certain people on the news who don't give us a very good name. Entitled, spoiled brats who can make a living out of setting fire to our mansions or committing pranks that really translate to felonies. But here's the thing. This represents a really small minority of content creators on the platform. It's just that, unfortunately, they're the ones who make the headlines. They're the ones who you read about in the national papers, and they give the rest of us a bad name. Not saying we're saints. Of, of course, anyone who gets on camera a couple times a week and expects people to listen to us is gonna have a degree of narcissism about them. But honestly, most of us on the platform just wanna make people smile or laugh or learn something. That's why I decided to dedicate a large portion of my platform to, in a humorous way, calling out and ribbing on the guys and gals who sour the social media sphere. I built up an audience and I wanted to do good with it. Call out injustice, challenge sexism, racism, bigotry in general. And most importantly, give an absolute roasting to the kings and queens of cringe who fill the recommended pages of YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Where our story really starts. But before that, I wanna clear something up. You might think you know who I am. I guarantee you're wrong. I'm very, very good at masking my voice, making it sound like other people in the same field as me. You're probably thinking right now, hey, this is that one guy. Didn't he go on tour with? We'll stop right there, okay? All you're getting is that my name is Nick. It's not, it's a, it's a nickname. Nick, get it? 
but I was staying anonymous, okay? And anonymity is not something I've worried about in my career up until now. I've made enemies, okay? Plenty of enemies. Mostly dudes in their 20s who make a career out of showing their abs on social media, but enemies nonetheless. So I don't shy away from facing up to people I've pissed off. Not saying I fight them. God, no, but you know, I'll, I'll stand by my words and actions. Here though, I've got to protect my identity. You'll see why. Thing is, I've discovered something, something utterly horrifying, something, something that seems so bizarre as to be hilarious at first until it wasn't anymore. And it became the scariest thing I have ever lived through. Intrigued, curious, you should be. You're probably on the internet right now as you listen to this. So this affects you. It could potentially affect everyone. It could, it could change the world. And like I said, it started on TikTok. And if you enjoyed this video, please press the like button because one like equals one top hat that I will personally save from the infamous top hat burning prankster. <laughs> and join me next time where I'll be revisiting one of this channel's favorite topics, creepy fucking e-boys. Yeah, will I ever get tired of dunking on these fools? Hell no. So see you soon for some premium ab flexing content from grown ass men. And I promise you, the Cash Me Baby Boy video is coming, just not next week. It's taking longer than expected, but it'll be worth it. Trust me. Okay, peace. That was me finishing up my video from last week. No, you haven't seen it. Yeah, I chose not to upload it. Not sure I'll ever upload anything again, to be honest. I'm laying low for a good while, and you'll see why. Right the heck now. Weird. Whoever was calling was someone I didn't have in my contacts list. And this was my personal phone, not the one I used for business calls. I figured it must be one of my friends with a new number. Maybe Greg. He, he was always losing his phone. Yellow? Nick nickname here. To whom do I have the pleasure of balling with? Like she said, Lily was absolutely not anyone I recognized. But I didn't really have the time to consider this when she said the words that changed my life. You've been digging into Joseph Kashmi, haven't you? Oh God, was this some kind of threat? Cause yeah, I had been digging into Joseph Kashmi, king of the e-boys, and the hottest social media star this side of Jake Paul's backyard pool. Okay, so let me explain a couple things really quick. Don't know what an e-boy is? Good for you. You probably live off the grid, or you're over 35, both things I can respect. But to follow this, I'm gonna have to take your e-boy virginity and explain. Basically, e-boys are weird pseudo-goths who make mad cash out of wearing chains, lip-syncing to songs on TikTok, and pulling really weird faces where they blow kisses or roll their eyes back into their skull. If this seems incomprehensible and feels like you're missing something, then I promise you it isn't, and you're not. This is exactly what they are. Sometimes they do point of view ASMR narrations where they pretend to be your overly dominating boyfriend or a dude who saved you from quicksand or your friend's sexy older brother who's also a werewolf. Again, I am aware this makes no sense, but this is exactly the kind of shit they get famous and popular for. And for real, this whole culture is hella toxic. It glorifies abuse and fetishizes bad boys, you know, dudes who treat others like crap. So yeah. I dunk on them. And Joseph Kashmi, if you somehow haven't heard of him, is the absolute worst e-boy there is. 
So I've been working on a video about him for a couple months. You know, hitting up old high school peers, watching his TikToks over and over, trying to understand why his cringy, shirtless, sinister POV content had become so popular. And I was getting absolutely nothing. Nobody would say shit about him. In fact, nobody even remembered going to high school with him. Even though I tracked down his yearbooks, his graduating class, everything. It was like their collective memories had been wiped or they'd somehow all been warned not to talk about this dude. And I knew, I just knew, in the psychic way that all commentary YouTubers can tell, that this guy had some major skeletons hiding in his closet. And people were clamoring for my video on him, hundreds of messages every day. But up until then, all I had was dude's hella cringe. I mean, his username is Cash Me Baby Boy. that's enough cringe for a video by itself. But they're all cringe. I wanted to find the dirt. And now someone was calling, acknowledging that I'd been digging into the guy's past? This was more progress than I'd made with people who were apparently his best goddamn friends in high school. Now I just had to hope she wasn't there to threaten my life and make me back off. Hi, uh, yeah, I mean, you clearly already know I've been digging into old cash me baby boy, so I won't deny it. So are you here to dish the dirt or threaten to put me six feet under it? <laughs> Neither. I'm here to ask for your help by dishing the dirt to me. Okay, see, this might be a problem. But firstly, can you explain why? So she did. And if you're not familiar with Joseph Cashmi, there's something else you should know. He lives in this massive-ass LA mansion with like a hundred other people. They call themselves the Cash Machines. They're all fans, all over 18, but all super fans. Nobody knows exactly how someone gets chosen to be a Cash Machine. Cashmi boasts that there are always 100 of them at any given time. There are often new faces, which means some leave. They can always be seen in the background of his TikToks and YouTube videos, appearing to have a hell of a lot of crazy ruckus fun. It always looked like hell to me. So long story short, Lily's sister, let's call her Billy, had been chosen to become a cash machine about six months ago. Lily did not know how Billy had been chosen. And Billy wouldn't say. She'd upped and moved to LA and soon cut off all contact with her family bar the very occasional email. The only way they even knew for sure she was still alive was based on her frequent appearances in the background of Joseph Kashmi's TikToks. And then a few weeks ago, the appearances had stopped. All attempts to contact Billy had failed. Her email address had been deactivated, the cops out in LA weren't interested because Billy was a grown adult of 21 and could make her own decisions. And Lily told me they had categorically stated, without even being asked, that there was nothing suspicious, strange, or dangerous about Joseph Kashmi and his cash machines. Like, they'd been prepped to say it. Like, it was rehearsed. Like, they'd said it dozens of times before. In one brief phone call, this had changed from me looking for dirt to me genuinely worrying that we had some kind of Jonestown situation going on. In full view of everyone, in a mansion in the Calabasas Hills, broadcast on goddamn TikTok. Suddenly, the scope for a comedy video ripping into this guy was shrinking by the second. Of course, there was still a very, very good chance that nothing sinister was going on, and Billy had simply moved out of the cash machine mansion and gotten distracted by being in LA. But, you know, that whole commentary YouTuber psychic thing, I had a bad feeling about this. So, yeah, I was kinda hoping you had some insight. I explained to Lily how fruitless my search had been. Alarmingly fruitless, in fact. 
She recounted similar tales of tracking down old friends from Kashmi's life before social media, only for them to claim they don't remember the guy at all. Did you ever find out anything about the dude's family? No. That was a red flag, too. Couldn't trace a single thing about his family in any way, not even any details. Don't even know so much as whether he has a sibling. No old home addresses, nothing. And yet, finding deets about his old schools, his old yearbooks, his old friends, it was all easy. Too easy, in fact. I mean, I have nowhere near the follower account of this guy, and even with my two and a half million subs, I'm a thousand times more careful about privacy. <laughs> was that a subtle flex, dude? I blushed. I, I hadn't intended to be. Compared to someone like Joseph Kashmi, who had 189 million subscribers on TikTok alone, I was a little guy. But then, who wasn't compared to Kashmi? His channel growth on YouTube, a platform that doesn't even host his main content, had demolished all records. He made Mr. Beast look small fry. But hey, who can resist a subtle flex? Totally. <laughs> I might not be a creepy eye-rolling e-boy who's trying to start the next Manson family, but I still got my million subscriber plaque. Oh God, you don't think it is something like the Manson family, do you? I immediately realized how I'd put my foot in it. At least I hadn't mentioned Kool-Aid. No, no, I'm sure Billy's fine. I'm sure nothing weird's going on at all. I I wish I had more to tell you, but hey, leave it with me, okay? I'm gonna call a couple of my buddies and see what they think. Then I'll get back to you, yeah? I'd really appreciate that, dude. My mom and stepdad are out of their minds with worry. All of us really miss Billy. We just wanna know if she's okay. Screw the cash me, asshole. I'll see what I can do. Once we'd hung up, I called two of my pals in the commentary genre. They're both level-headed, sensible guys. I knew they'd give me the best advice on how to proceed from here. How to help Lily with her sister without potentially getting involved in a dangerous situation. And you're absolutely sure that breaking into the multi-million dollar Kashmir mansion is something you're willing to do just to help some rando you met in real life for the first time a few hours ago? Hey, anything for the content. I was being glib, of course, but I was out of ideas. In the five days between Lily's call and now, I'd done as much extra digging as I could and came away with precisely nothing. I also hadn't told Lily, but I'd attempted to identify and track down some of the other cash machine folk who'd appeared in earlier videos, then stopped showing up in more recent ones. I'd only managed to get a handful of results thanks to screen grabs and reverse image searching, but the few I'd managed to unearth social media pages for, well, Let's just say that none of them had posted in a while, and all their friends and family had been concerned. And yes, before you ask, I tried speaking to the cops, and Lily hadn't been kidding about the responses seeming rehearsed. I, I even tried calling other departments in California and then resorted to other states entirely. Every single law enforcement official I spoke to gave some variation of the same rote answer. It was starting to feel a little Stepford Wives. So what choice did we have but to break into the Kashmi mansion and try snooping around? And I wasn't foolish, I timed it well. Joseph Kashmi had been bragging all week on social media about a huge party that was going down in the house that night. Invite only, of course, but all the hottest social media stars were gonna be there. All the cash machine's friends were gonna be there. If there was ever a time to sneak in unnoticed, it would be when the place was teeming with people. As a backup though, I'd had a friend in the area scope out the mansion. After a couple days studying the place, he reported that there was no security, no patrols, no cameras, nothing. 
In fact, he'd never even seen a single person come or go from that house. And I joked that there sure would be plenty of people coming and going on the night of the party. And yet here Lily and I were, through a hole we'd cut in the fence, standing in the darkened, silent grounds of Joseph Kashmi's mansion. I sure don't hear any sounds of a party. Yeah, this is super, super weird. There weren't even any lights on in the building, from what I could see. The only illumination came from some dim underwater lighting in the pool, famous for appearing on TikTok filled with glittery pink foam on numerous occasions. And now the water lay still, scum and leaves coating the top. It looked like it hadn't been cleaned in weeks. Maybe the party's somewhere else? Kashmi's just gone live. He's live streaming the party. Let me see that. Lily handed me her cell phone. Sure enough, Kashmi was doing his usual preening and posturing, surrounded by numerous cash machines, and it sure looked like they were inside the mansion we currently stood just beside, with disco lights and pounding techno and all the sounds of a party. Only all of it was coming from Lily's phone and none from the house itself. But there, sure enough, it claimed Kashmi was live. This is definitely like the right house, yeah? It was. I doubled, triple checked. We stood outside a silent, dark mansion in which a ruckus party was apparently being live streamed from the main hallway. The main hallway whose windows we now crept up to and peered in. I can't see shit. I can see enough to know there's no goddamn party going on inside. Before I could say anything, Lily strode past the window and straight up to the large oaken double front door. She grasped the brass knocker. Oh gosh, you guys. Looks like we have some more party guests, and these are special guests. So I'm gonna end the live stream for now and go greet them, personally. What the absolute shit? Uh, there's nobody there. What the, what the fuck? Do we just go in? I, I guess so. I felt an ominous, sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, something it was horribly, horribly wrong here. Where were the hordes of cash machines and partygoers? Where was the music? Where were the lights? Where was anything? We stepped over the threshold into Kashmi's mansion, the home of King Eboy. The silly, goofy, toxic fool I've been all hyped to dunk on in a hilarious new video. Lily was fumbling for something and must have found a light switch because suddenly harsh white lighting filled my eyes, causing my vision to momentarily blur. When it returned, I wish it hadn't. What I saw in that grand hall defied all explanation, and, and there was only one thing I could say. This is hell. We are in hell. People everywhere, in roughly the same positions in the same crowds as I'd just seen them on the live stream, dancing and drinking and having fun, but there was no fun being had here. No party, no life at all. Everyone was dead, and it wasn't any Kool-Aid cult type thing where they'd all drank the punch and dropped. A few, and I really do mean a few of the bodies looked f freshly deceased, but the others, they were, I don't even, I don't even know how to explain it. They, they weren't decomposing. It wasn't gory. It, it was like each body was in the process of mummification, some more shriveled than others. Some were little more than papery skin on bone. Others were dried out, dehydrated husks with features intact, but their skin looked ancient, le leathery. 
Some looked like they'd been dead a decade, some a centuries, some more. And you'd expect a room filled with hundreds of corpses to smell bad. It, it didn't. At least not in that way. It smelled of dust and crypts, of ancient fabric and decaying paper. As we stepped forward, I could see the floor was caked in what appeared to be dust and, and gagged as I remembered that most dust comes from dried human skin. What the fuck is this? Lily was staring around, clearly as stricken as I was. Billy? Billy? Billy! She began to move a few steps in random directions as if heading towards one pile of corpses, then changing her mind and turning towards another. If Billy was in this room, then she wasn't alive. There was nothing alive in here. Or so I thought. Until a body that had been lying on the central marble staircase stood up. My eyes widened. Despite his wild, straggly beard and long hair, I could recognize who this was. It was Joseph Kashmi. Only he wasn't the young, virile, creepy e-boy we all knew and loathed. It was hard to place his age. His eyes looked young, but his body looked to be anywhere between middle-aged and ancient. He was topless as he had been on his live stream, but where once had been glistening abs, there now hung a distended, wrinkled stomach below drooping pecs. His arms were stick-thin, pockets of almost translucent skin jiggling as he shakily made his way down the stairs. In one hand, he clutched a cell phone. He held it up, back camera facing us, and stared into the screen as if unable to look at us directly. Lily was back by my side now. What the fuck is this? What have you done? We saw you! We just saw you! How? You are... How? They come, they go. Until he spoke, I'd entertain the tiny hope that this could be Kashmi's father or grandfather, but there was no mistaking that voice. It was him. They come, they feed me, they go. Fame is a demon. Fame is hungry. I have clout. I have the party. I am so hungry. Lily stepped forward. What the hell happened to my sister, you creepy old ass freak? Sister? Brother? What do I know? It came. I fed. It went. It lies here, no doubt. Kashmi gestured around at the pile of corpses littering every corner of the party. He still hadn't taken his eyes off the cell phone screen in his hand. You, with the sister brother, view me. Lily and I turned to look at one another. What the hell was this creep on about? View me. He waved the cell phone in his hand, still somehow keeping his eyes fixed to the screen. I think he wants you to view him through your phone? Lily held her phone up and opened the camera app. We both physically jumped at what we saw. On screen, the party was in full swing around us. Cash machines danced, laughed, drank. And in the center of it all stood Cashmi, his usual young self, phone pointed at us. I looked from the screen back to the reality of the room and back to the screen. Shut it off, shut it off now. But Lily was transfixed. 
A notification popped up on her phone. Cash Me Baby Boy has gone live. Lily thumbed the pop-up. They come, they feed, they go. I broadcast, the world sees. I am young, I am a boy, a man boy. Fame is a demon, she is hungry. I am hungry. On Lily's phone screen, I could see us. We were watching the feed from Kashmi's camera. On screen, Lily no longer wore the black polo neck and dark jeans she'd been wearing when we met. She wore a short skirt, a tube top, there was glitter on her skin, and her hand was a drink, not a phone. My vision wavered. The live stream was tugging on me. I tore my gaze away, back to Lily. She was already falling to the ground. Her eyes turned from a vibrant hazel to a filmy, milky white. Her lips shriveled as I watched. It come, I feed, it go. Now, you. I tried to save her, I did. I tried tugging on her arm, but her bones had already turned brittle. They snapped under my grip. Her skin was already flaking off, her hair falling out. What could I do but run? Hello, this is 911 Dispatch. What service do you require? Cops, I need the fucking cops now. I'm outside the grounds of a mansion in Calabasas. There's Sir, been- Sir, there is nothing suspicious, strange, or dangerous about Joseph Cashme and his cash machines. But I didn't even, I didn't fucking even- Sir, this is bordering <laughs> on harassment. If you don't leave Mr. Cashmere's property, then we'll send a squad car out. Yes! Send a car out! Send all the cars! They're dead in there! Everyone's dead! I can assure you that Mr. Cashmere is alive and well. He's the internet's most popular e-boy, and the fastest growing social media influencer across multiple platforms. Oh my god, I know that, but- Sir, there is nothing suspicious, strange, or dangerous about Joseph Cashmere and his cash machines. So best as I understand it, the internet's most popular e-boy is a myth. He's a decaying old man who is somehow luring in young people, draining them of their life, and broadcasting an idealized, imaginary version of his reality across the globe. I have no idea how he does this. He claimed that fame is a demon. Maybe that's literal. I don't... Yeah, I'm aware of the somewhat blunt metaphor in all of this. I am a YouTuber myself, after all. But what can I do? His facade is impenetrable. His reach is endless. His influence is unbreakable. I got no footage from that night, and even if I had, I'm not convinced it would have reflected anything other than what Joseph Kashmi wants the world to see. If I come out with this story publicly, if I attach my real name to it, then at best I'll be branded as a kook, a loony. At worst, I'll somehow find myself back in that charnel house in the Calabasas Hills attending one of Kashmi's forever parties. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can change. My only hope is that by sharing this story anonymously, it might one day lead to someone else being able to stop him. Because I'm in his sights now. I, I know this from the messages I've been getting over the last two days. Constant DMs across all my social platforms. They come, I feed. They go, you come next. Or stay away, your choice. If I thought I could change things, I would. But if I meet Mr. Cashmere again, I don't see it ending well. I'm already having sleepless nights. 
I feel like I've aged a decade in the last week. There are bags under my eyes. I found a gray hair when I was looking in the mirror this morning. I, I need to move on, get back to my usual self and put this behind me. It's all I can do. A burned out, washed up man on the brink of terror is not the image of myself I want to present to the world. Intrusive thoughts can be one hell of a thing to deal with. A voice in the back of your mind constantly telling you things that are usually detrimental to your health or well-being. If you suffer badly from them, chances are you've developed coping mechanisms to mitigate them. But in this tale, shared with us by author R. Proven, we discover what happens when one young woman's coping methods can't deal with a certain recurring terror. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and James Cleveland. So come up with whatever solutions you need to deal with the voices in your head. Battle your demons, inner and outer. Just don't let yourself be compelled. It had been another long night for Maisie. She woke, still feeling her heart beating loudly, the sound of her own blood rushing in her ears. I wonder what it would sound like if you pierced your eardrum with an ice pick. Does blood rushing out sound the same as blood rushing in? Try, try, try! Maisie blinked nine times, shook herself. Her defenses were not yet in place. It was getting harder to do all the rituals in time to give herself a quiet morning. Thankfully, Ewan still slept beside her. She hoped the night hadn't been all that bad from his perspective. She reached over to wake him. Don't wake him. Don't ever wake him. Tweezers on the nightstand. Take them. Pull out his eye. Just one, not both. Pull, pull, pull. Nine more blinks. No, no, no. Three times, must be out loud. Ewan woke on the third and turned to Maisie, reaching up to move her hair out of her face, where it had fallen as she focused on quieting her mind to face the day. Bad night again. She tapped rhythmically on the bed in front of her, in a sequence that only she understood. Asks too many questions. Buy a needle and thread, so his mouth shut. Imagine pushing the needle through the flesh. You do it slowly, yes? It has to be here. The least you can do is to be quiet. So, so, so. Mm-hmm. It's not that the mornings were particularly hard. It's just that everything had reset. All of her defenses must be rebuilt every morning. The nights were definitely the worst. That was when she was the most exposed. She got up and stumbled through to the bathroom. Almost done, and then she could focus on other things. Look in the mirror. 
This is what I do for you until the day I don't. Every morning, every morning, every morning. As she listened closely to the voice, she looked at herself in the mirror. It wasn't her speaking. Her mouth did not shape the words. Maisie couldn't remember when it started exactly. It didn't happen all at once, a sudden companion with a bloody outlook on the world. It didn't even start as words. She remembered her childhood, her mind filled with the sound of static, her thoughts stuck between channels. Then a rustling, a shh, 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 of something cutting through the pieces of her mind, clearing the brush to make a space for itself. The first word it spoke was an innocuous one. Stick. Stick this, stick that. Sometimes it made sense, sitting at the dinner table, fork poised to eat. Stick. She soon realized that often there was some insinuation behind the word, some hidden meaning that it was hoping she might discern that may add to her discomfort. She sat at a dinner with an old teacher from her school, hoping he might give her a recommendation. He had always praised her work. Stick. She picked up a kitchen knife to open a particularly stubborn delivery box. Her mother was in the room and asked if she needed help. Stick. In winter, she went for a walk along the riverbank, and a dog ran up to her, barking happily. The owner ran after them quickly, worry on her face. The river was deep today, she said, the current fast. She didn't want him falling in. Stick, stick, stick. As she got older and her world expanded, so did its vocabulary. It was singularly cruel in its motivations. Whatever situation Maisie found herself in, there would be some blood it could find to spill. It was the worst with children. It seemed so fascinated in the pain that could be inflicted on something so new to the world. As she got older, Maisie realized quickly that the voice was something other than herself. It wasn't a subconscious desire she held within her to hurt or wound. It was entirely detached and enclosed. But it was a part of her, so she could control it. The rituals started slowly. The first thing she found that worked was the blinking. Nine times in the morning, three as a top-up when needed. It was like resetting the picture in front of her, throwing the comments off kilter and bringing her back to reality. The rituals always needed adjusting, though. There was constant maintenance. For every weed she would cut back inside her mind, more would grow. The repetitive cadence of the messages was an unintended side effect of one of the rituals. She had started with a no, no, no mantra that had evolved the speech patterns to taunt her. No, no, no. She would cry. Slice, slice, slice. Cut, cut, cut. Tear, tear, tear. It would respond. But occasionally it would be almost a source of comfort for her. It would respond in kind with rituals of its own, and sometimes even whisper words of encouragement. The mirror ritual was one they had mutually agreed on long ago. It would repeat the words. She would look, mouth closed, to remind herself which voice was her own. She felt as though it knew she was of no use if she was entirely broken. The day passed uneventfully. Things were quiet, almost alarmingly so. The only time she had struggled slightly was on her journey home. 
It had fixated on someone on the train, some innocent commuter that had reached a seat before she had. No consideration. He probably thought you were too ugly to give up a seat to. He doesn't deserve to be here, doesn't deserve to be alive. Open his throat. Cover their seats in blood. Start at the tendon. I want to hear it ping when you slice it. Or, better yet, follow him when he changes trains. Push him in front of the next one. Smear him smooth along the tracks if you can't get a seat. Nobody should travel anywhere. Road people need rude ends. Road, road, road. She knew the only way it would stop would be to remove herself from the situation, so she adjusted her route. Sometimes this would happen multiple times a day and she would arrive home after hours of constant transport changes and travelling back on herself. If she didn't, it would only get louder and faster. Then what? The thing that scared her most wasn't being able to hear it. It was believing it. Believing that she was capable of these things, that she could carry them out. She was sure she couldn't, but it seemed to be that it had a violent solution to almost every situation. After a quiet evening at home, she settled down to sleep. Ewan already slept next to her, his breathing deep and slow. He looked beautiful when he slept. She liked to see him so peaceful. She blinked nine times, took a deep breath, then let herself fall into slumber. She opened her eyes and tried to sit up. She was stuck, knew what was coming. She tried to turn her head to look at the clock. 3.13 a.m. She could feel it, and could not move to rouse Ewan or turn on the light. She started to blink. Nine blinks, that's all she needed. She got to six. No, 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 no! It was no longer a whisper, it was a scream. She felt a weight on her chest. She opened her mouth, but as usual it had taken her voice along with her movement. She didn't want to look but her eyes were the only part of her that she still had control over. So, in defiance, she opened them. It was, in some ways, shaped like a human, but Maisie wouldn't call it one. Its arms and legs were overlong, spindly fingers stretching out into needle points, sharp, glistening spines that always dripped with ichor. The shape of its body was ill-defined, the edges of it not yet decided on. It would grow and shrink with the night, constantly shifting and unbalancing. There was a vague smell of iron that clung to it and stung Maisie's nose as it watched her. Or did it watch her? It had no face as we understand them. Instead of eyes, there were dozens of holes, small and fleshy and deeper than Maisie liked to think about, like something had begun burying itself into the place where its eyes should be, but kept losing its taste for it. They spread all the way across its face, blood and pus slowly draining from them, though it never seemed to run out. At the side, small strings of flesh trailed aimlessly from inside its skull, just begging to be pulled. It asked her sometimes to do that, reach up and pull on one of the threads that hung from its temple. It described to her some of the things that might happen. Maybe nothing, maybe pain for it. Maybe everything underneath would be attached, and as she pulled, something would emerge, a new friend for her. Below that, a ragged moor gaped, its edges chewed and bloody as if cut into the face with a bread knife, with teeth that were small and rectangular like tiny tombstones. Between admonishments, its mouth would hang open in what Maisie had come to interpret as a grin, 
but all the signs of mirth that should be there were not. Miss, did you miss me? Miss, did you miss me? Miss me? Miss me? Miss me? It always greeted her like this, one hand on her chest to hold her down. She knew that as long as she was in the dark, it would be there, and she would be its rapt audience of one. It was at these times that all her rituals failed her. She was completely at its mercy. She opened her mouth again to attempt to scream, but all that came out was the tiniest whisper, so quiet not even you and right beside her could be roused by it. Please, please help me. <laughs> its laugh, a murder of crows in its throat, filling her mind with its insane, mocking croaks. She steeled herself and tried again, just a little louder. Please. Ewan began to stir. It turned from her, looking at him. It raised its free hand and reached across, running a needle point over Ewan's cheek. Why haven't you plucked out his eyes yet? Maybe that's wrong. Start instead. Cut pieces of him off for me. Cut off his toes. Cut off his fingers. Cut off his ears. Cut off his dick. All the little pieces. Cut them up. Cut them up. Cut them up. A tear rolled down Maisie's cheek. She loved Ewan so much, and he was so good to her. He thought her rituals were cute, a coping mechanism for a noisy life. He knew she thought bad thoughts sometimes, but didn't everyone? He knew she wouldn't really hurt him. But you could. You could do so much if you only listened. I could tell you secrets, just like I tell you truths. Everyone hurts. You can make them hurt, hurt, hurt. Please, no! There it was, her voice. She took a breath. No, no, no. And just like that, it was gone. She turned on the light and tried to shake away the imprint of it on her mind. It was always the holes that left her last, shining with their own gory light pressing into her mind. Ewan blearily sat up beside her and pulled her close. On and on it went like this, her rituals keeping it at bay, but it was her constant companion nonetheless. She knew that there was only so long this uneasy truce could continue. She found a doctor, an OCD specialist at the Nightingale Centre in London. On the way there, she could barely put one foot in front of another. It didn't focus on the appointment or the doctor, what would that help? Instead, it mentally eviscerated every passerby, every cute pet and smiling baby was at its mercy. A baby is so soft. Throw the baby into the traffic. How will the tiny body fall? Will it fly up in the air or be caught by girls? Give the girls a taste for human flesh, flesh, flesh. The doctor was kind and more understanding than Maisie could ever have hoped for. Maisie was a reasonable person, and reasonable people don't listen to the voices in their head, the doctor said. Getting rid of the intrusive thoughts would be a long road, but it was one that Maisie was on the way down. They were confident that it could be tamed, perhaps even banished for extended periods of time. No more rituals. Rituals were an unhealthy compulsion that she should try to overcome. They could start right away with the night terrors. Try something called anticipatory awakening. It was always around 3.13am, so if an alarm were to wake her about 10 minutes prior, she would be able to rouse herself and reset her mind, not allowing it the time to freeze her in her bed like it so often did. 
Maisie walked out of the Nightingale Centre feeling more hopeful than she had felt since she was a teenager. Maybe soon she'd be able to get to and from her house without plotting hundreds of murders along the way. Maybe a full night's sleep was in her future, and she could stop counting her blinks. So many possibilities stretched out in front of her. Then, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the street, she froze. You don't know what I can do. This has only been play. These stories will be made real. I will tear the world apart with your hands and you will watch, watch, watch. It had only been there for a second, but that same force she felt pushing her down into the bed was there, in the middle of the day. She shook herself and continued on. The doctor had said it might get worse before it gets better, but that's all this was. Mental illness, rearing up in one last attempt to control her whilst she fights through it. The alarm buzzed in the darkness, startling Maisie awake. She looked at the clock first out of habit. 2.58am, just as planned. Next, she experimented, gently wiggling her fingers and toes. Everything moved as it should, and she breathed out a sigh of relief. The doctor had told her she need only remain awake for a few minutes. That would be enough to reset the connections in her brain that were creating her nightmares. She smiled to herself and rolled onto her side to face Ewan. Surprise, surprise, surprise! His eyes were open, but he did not look back at her. He couldn't if he had wanted to. He was frozen, all his attention held by that thing, the bloody mess of holes that hovered inches above his face. Maisie jumped out of the bed in shock, backing as far away as she could. She hit the palm of her hand against her head as if to shake the vision. This wasn't how this was supposed to work. The figment of her imagination shouldn't be able to hurt anyone else. I told you. You didn't know. You thought you were crazy. I always told you you weren't. I just wanted you to hurt. All I wanted was to hurt, but you wouldn't do it. So maybe he will, will, will. She looked on in horror as it started tapping a rhythm on Ewan's chest. The same rhythm she used as a ritual in the mornings to shake away the night before. But its fingers were needles, and each tap was a point pushed into Ewan's flesh until he was covered in pinpricks, each red dot shining even in the darkness. He tried to cry out, to scream, but all he could muster was a sad, timid croak that left his throat like a sigh. I see now why you do this. So delicate. Such small wounds. Will it take long to die? Tap, 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 tap. Finally, she came to her senses and moved to push the thing off Ewan's chest. But every step towards him felt more and more like wading through treacle, and when she reached the bed she found herself unable to move any closer, and was forced to watch helplessly as the taps became rougher and deeper, turning Ewan's torso into a constellation of bloody stars, his breathing ragged and uneven. She may not have had movement, but she found she could still summon words. That part of it was not the same. What can I do to make you stop this? Please tell me. Stick! The first word. Starting so innocent, but now it was like a stab to her heart. What was she supposed to do? It turned to her, and its mouth tore itself into a wide, terrifying grin. It continued the incessant puncturing with one hand, while raising the other to place a single point to its temple. 
Stick, stick, stick. There, draping from one of the holes in its face was a piece of flesh, far longer than any she'd seen there before. She felt the bile rising in her throat, but she knew what she had to do. As if in answer, she found that she was able to move one arm. She knew instinctively that if she tried to do anything but follow the instructions, this gift of movement would be revoked. She reached up and stuck two fingers inside the hole where the piece of flesh trailed. Inside was warm and wet, with ridges along the edges that caught her fingers like a fishhook. She fought back another wave of nausea, pinched the fleshy end between her thumb and forefinger, and pulled. Whatever it was fought against her, but the thing didn't seem to care. It had ceased the incessant tapping, giving Ewan a reprieve as it focused on what was being done to itself. It began to make a quiet, repetitive clicking sound, a nightmarish purr of comfort. The hole in its temple began to expand as whatever thing resided in there started to emerge. It was thin at first, then thickened like an umbilical cord. Where was it coming from? Maisie willed for it to stop coming, but it didn't. Kept getting thicker, and she began to see that it was something rolled up. Here a piece of flesh, but here a tuft of hair, a lump of cartilage. It screeched the word over and over, and Maisie began to wail, the disgust becoming unbearable. And finally it was done. The last dripping, fleshy tendril dropped from the now cavernous hole, and as it fell, she heard a shluk sound of it detaching from something deep inside. She looked at its face. The holes weren't fleshy anymore. They were a deep, dark black. They seemed to stretch forever. There was nothing inside to reflect off anymore. The creature looked at her almost contentedly. This will be so much easier now. Now, we'll be friends. Now, you'll do what I ask. But we're not quite done. There's one more thing now. Look, look, look. The lump lay on her bed, leaking plasma like an exposed burn. The last thing in the world she wanted to do was touch it, but she'd come this far now, and who knew what would happen to Ewan if she didn't finish what she had started? She picked the thing up and started to unroll it. She wasn't sure at first what she held. Then she saw the nose. Ewan always said she had a cute little button nose, one of his favorite things about her. Unattached like she saw it now, it looked almost comical, a vestigial growth. She laid the thing flat and saw herself. Her own face, skinned thickly and devoid of eyes or teeth. The thing watched her and made a noise of glee when it knew she understood. Yes, it is. Isn't it good? I've been growing it just for you in here, in me. But now it's time to be out. One last thing. One little thing. Just tie, tie, tie. Yes, the tenderness cords that had been hanging from its face, that's what they were. A way to attach it. She took the flesh and placed it over the face of her monster. She reached behind it and began to tie each length of flesh together, placing the nose and the mouth just so over its misshapen features. 
She didn't think it could look any worse, but that was before she sat back to look at her handiwork. Her face, her features pasted over this thing. It still had the same mouth, and instead of eyes, she could just see some of the network of holes peering through each eye socket. It reached up, grabbed each of her eyelids and made itself blink, croaking with laughter. Then it reached its arm over to her bedside lamp, turned it on, and everything was gone. Everything except the blood now covering Ewan, who turned onto his side and vomited, gasping and crying, doing everything he could to avoid Maisie's gaze and cries of shame. Maisie didn't get much sleep the rest of the night. When the paramedics came to take Ewan away, they asked him how he got the injuries, looking at Maisie suspiciously as they did so. He wouldn't answer, just said again and again for them to get him out of that house. He wouldn't even look her in the eye, and she knew in her heart that it would be the last night they spent together. They told her to expect a call from the police in the morning. She drifted in and out of sleep, but every time she closed her eyes she would see it. Her own sockets filled with holes, the blood covering everything she touched. She awoke blearily and blinked. How many times? It hardly mattered. She went through to the bathroom and splashed water on her face, then looked at herself in the mirror. She waited for it. But then, unbidden, she watched herself start to speak. This is what it did for you. But now, I am right here. She heard it. And it was her. Her mouth shaped the words. Real-life experiences, such as those of soldiers during World War II, eclipse most horrors we can imagine. World War II was a time of turmoil, fear, and senseless death. And when you're facing death from the enemy, the last thing you want is a murder among your own team. But in this tale, shared with us by author Andrew Punzo, we meet a group of Navy sailors who are faced with exactly that. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, and Jesse Cornett. So when you're focusing on the murderer, be sure to pay attention to what's heading your way. It might leave you adrift. For all the seawater I've been drinking, my brain should have swollen into blackness ten times over. But it hasn't. And the torture of wondering when death will release me plays second devil only to the looping rerun of how it all went wrong in the first place. After all, thinking about it is all I can do out here. 
The ones who died when the torpedo hit were the saints among us, which isn't saying much for sailors. Of the roughly 1,200 men aboard, a dozen or so were off watch and in the chapel below decks, helping the chaplain assistant prepare for the funeral. I was in the brig, trying to pin Viscus when everything went to hell. He was despondent and grimy by all appearances, sitting on the floor of his cell as a thin sheet of bilge water sloshed around him, oscillating with the gentle roll of the cruiser. Yet there was an air of steadfastness about him that the accused will hold to like a drowning man to a piece of flotsam. I ain't saying no more. Where's my jag? The officers around me laughed. You must still be a little drunk, Joseph. I ain't drunk. Then maybe you'd like another swig. I pulled the cork and swished the quarter-full bottle of communion wine in front of his bloodshot eyes. They followed it like a hypnotist's pendant and his red spider-veined nose twitched at the scent. Tell me what really happened when you left watch, then I'll send for some rum. He motioned me closer, still staring at the bottle as he drew his face up to the bars. I leaned in. I saw you calling out in the radio. Wonder who it could have been you were talking to, so late an hour. That wasn't a question. That's an order from your admiral. But another officer gave me a sidelong glance and raised an eyebrow. I steadied myself in that split second. Viscus couldn't prove a thing, and no one would take his word over mine. But there was a saying about when a secret is safe. I would have no peace of mind until he was done in. There's no radio until we've made it out of enemy waters. Not even Truman knows we're here and we can't risk fucking it all up. You'll get a court-martial and the whole kit later, but you need to tell us what happened now. Why'd you go to the chapel when you left watch? Viscus's unblinking eyes did not move from mine. He knew how much sway I held as a five-star admiral, and he knew his reputation among the men as well as I did, all the more sullied since word had spread of his arrest. He was an outsider, a mongrel, and a lowlife, but he was not stupid. He knew where I was going, even if he didn't know precisely why. Enough evidence to tie him to the murder, and he would hang at my command. No court-martial, no jag, no longer a threat. You're done in for, Joseph. You can play it as cool as you like, but we all know what happened. On what proof? Who are you talking with on the radio so late? I pulled the plastic bag from my gunny sack, silencing him. The bloody K-bar knife inside was standard issue. Every man Jack in the Navy had one but JV was carved into this one's handle. I plunged it into the body several times and left it in the chapel after wiping my prints. Miscus's hand shot to where it should have been on his belt had I not lifted it from his room as he laid passed out in a drunken stupor. I thanked my lucky stars as I saw the shocked understanding spread across his face that I had doubled back and followed him after he saw me on the radio. We all know you've stolen or fenced just about everything that hasn't been bolted down for an ounce of liquor. You got one mean monkey on your back, Joseph, and it must have been tearing your hair out after a long night on watch. Ain't nothing happened. We all know that you snuck into the chapel. I want a glass of water. We know Father Bonnie caught you filching the communion wine. Give me water! And we know you stabbed him to death. Water! A shudder rocked the cramped space, sending myself and the other officers sprawling as a rushing tide flooded out of the darkness. The air raid sirens wailed in the wake of a thudding boom that echoed throughout the iron sides of the ship. Viscus was screaming my name, arms outstretched through the bars of his cell. Blood ran from a gash in his forehead and mixed with the rising seawater. 
I spared him no backwards glance as I bounded up the stairs after my officers and ordered the hatch to the brig sealed. Throngs of sailors ran about while bursts of gunfire punctured the ocean, bullets searching in vain for the Japanese submarine. I was briefed by the Commodore at the command bridge. She took a torpedo to the starboard hull, sir. Smacked through the chapel and blew a powder magazine. We can't pump it, and she's leaning bad. As he spoke, the ship was groaning into a tilted list. White-capped waves were breaking over the bow. Uh, On your orders, sir. The frenzied activity on deck doubled when I gave the command to abandon ship. I crowded onto a raft while others threw themselves over the side, donning life vests or clinging to anything that would float. I was shouting at men to move away before she rolled over on top of us. Heavy machinery and vehicles began tumbling off the ship and crushed those too near in the water like insects beneath falling rocks. Explosions and fire racked her as the ship grew slick with blood and oil, making escape impossible for those who stayed behind to help the trapped and the wounded. A jeep careened into a group of men struggling to lift the lead-lined crate containing the uranium, evaporating them in a spray of pink mist and sounding a hollow thong of metal on metal that tolled like a doom bell as our weapon to end the war sank to the bottom of the sea. Things had gone from bad to worse to foobar in the 13 minutes it took her to roll over and vanish. And then there were those that the sea swallowed. The vacuum left in the wake of 10,000 long tons of sinking steel was replaced by the suction of water rushing back to fill in the void. The screams of sailors close enough to be sucked under were drowned out by the roar of the vortex. Even with life vests, no one who went under resurfaced. The currents and winds were setting us adrift, so I ordered everyone to close into a circle and canvas the debris. Two crates of potatoes and some limes did nothing to make the situation less grim. Roll was called. Eight hundred and some sailors had made it off the boat. The bright, angry eye of the sun rose to its noontime zenith and forced us to submerge beneath the waves and lather our exposed skin with oil from the slick left by the ship. An engineer informed me that he had managed to send out a mayday signal, but was doubtful that it would be received. And, if so, by whom? In this vast expanse of ocean, there was little in the way of activity, either by friend or foe. I was going over soaked sea charts and trying to make sense of a waterlogged compass when gasps and exclamations broke the dead of the dog heat. A man was swimming towards my raft, parting the survivors like Moses had led the sea through a group of Israelites instead of the other way around. When he spoke, the uneasy suspicion in my stomach exploded into panic. I'm still thirsty. I was shocked, just as much at the sight of him as I was at the fact that he had somehow escaped his cell and the bowels of the ship. I ordered him dragged aboard and bound at the hands and gagged. Some of the men hesitated. I drew my knife and Viscous laughed. Cut him up, Admiral. Ain't gonna do you any good. I lunged forward with a strip of cloth, losing my footing and stumbling as he laughed harder. (laughs) Pretty quick to have me shut my mouth, eh? Wonder why we got torp- I punched the rag into his mouth. He slowly rocked his head forward and regarded me with cool eyes. As I tightened the knot behind his ears, I noticed that he was not wearing a life vest. The hot, sapping hours dragged on towards nightfall and the cool, glittering moon that rose provided relief, as did the rations of canteen water stored aboard my raft. We soon yearned for the sun, however, as the tepid waters of the Pacific grew cold and chilled us. Throughout the night, many of the wounded slipped away, 
the situation being so hopeless that the only rights given were a sound off from the dog tags of the dead. Collins, Edward T, Lazar, Stephen K, Halifax, Jerome Y, and dozens of other names that were cried out in the wet darkness that lapped at our spirits, both above and below, as it began to rain. Black clouds extinguished the moon and stars. The devil himself could have been in the raft next to me, and I would have been none the wiser. For all that was yet about to happen to us, he probably was. As the first pale yellow streaks of dawn broke the thick morning gray, I saw that Viscus was still bleeding from the gash in his forehead. Thin, watery blood ran down the side of the raft and dripped into the water. A predatory silhouette passed beneath the dispersing droplets. Its fin rose and split the surface. Shark! The sea roiled as the men swam about in panic. Seeing an opportunity to stem the pandemonium and give Viscus his, I shoved him into the sea. The shark turned and circled Viscus, who thrashed and gnawed at his gag. Loathing coasted through me as its streamlined shape drew to mind the Japanese torpedo. But I also felt a sense of primordial glee. In the eerie silence, hundreds of pairs of eyes followed the revolving fin before settling on the man stewing at its center. It was a scene from the brink of abject savagery. I saw watching him like that. The penultimate point before a free-fall plunge that would take us to depths darker and deeper than the ocean that we were dying in. The shark swam faster still, its gray-white body becoming blurred streaks. A small whirlpool eddied around Viscus, spinning him slowly to face me. His eyes met mine just as the gnashing mouth spat out the tattered gag, spraying blood all over ragged lips in a barbaric scream. The shark snapped from its path and exploded out of the water, soaring into the raft next to mine and clamping its jaws down on the engineer. Its crashing bulk raised a wave that bucked me into the ocean. Beneath the surface, the engineer's gurgled scream sounded over the muffled crunching of bone. I rose to full-blown panic. More fins zipped across the water, picking men off and dragging them away. I steeled myself to remain as still as I could watching in terror as the sharks passed by me only to tear a nearby man apart. Some approached me, twitching and quivering with bloodlust, but they would suddenly change direction and shoot to the outer edges of the spreading, reddening blot that marked our misery. Then, in a flash, the blood blitz was over. Not even 90 seconds after the sharks had appeared, they were gone. What was left was stunned silence and viscous, still adrift in the middle of it all, laughing. (laughs) He kicked to my raft and wormed his way aboard, arms still bound before him. He surveyed the survivors. Who wants a drink? Faces blank with trauma instinctively turned towards the noise without showing any understanding of the words. I ain't had a drop since yesterday morn, and I sure am thirsty. He looked at the canteen stored in the corner of the raft, and on wobbling legs walked over to them. Viscous! Bet we could all use a bit to drink, eh? <laughs> Stand down, Viscus! Stand down! I clambered aboard and drew my knife. Viscus knelt and awkwardly scooped up several of the canteens like baby turtles. He cooed and rocked them in his arms, back and forth. I took a step forward and Viscus's head snapped up. His eyes narrowed as he swung his arms faster. A canteen tumbled and bounced on the floor of the raft. Put them down, Joseph. Please. What do you say, Admiral? What's a drop of sin in the ocean of evil? 
He flung the canteens overboard with a last wild swing, and a collective roar rose up from the sailors, their days broken by rage. I was already mid-lunge, the point of my knife aimed at the softness of his stomach, and sharper than any hate I could have felt for another man. I hated him. I hated him to the core, and I wanted him gone. To the core it went, cutting through the rope that bound him and up to the hilt. Blood splashed up my forearm. The cries of the sailors cut off like my knife had severed their vocal cords. I stood back, panting. Viscous looked down. With both hands, he slowly pulled the blade out of him, inspected it for a moment, and then thrust it into a canteen at his feet. He lifted it and drank deeply from the puncture. After a few seconds, the reddish-brown water spurted from the hole in his stomach. He tossed the hollow can aside, smacking his tattered lips and wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. And would you believe I'm still thirsty? The sum of it all confronted me, making me believe. A man who had escaped the sealed brig of a sinking ship. The same man who floated, without a life vest, who would not stop bleeding, who even the sharks refused to bite. He thirsted, but could neither slake it nor go about dying even when I stabbed him. Viscus never survived. He was a dead man, stuck living. What did that make the rest of us? Every one of you! We're all in it! He turned to the sailors, spreading his arms out in benediction. You thirst, you starve, you bleed, you burn and you freeze and you float, but you can't die! The remaining men looked at each other uneasily. Their own suspicions of our strange circumstances were being given unwilling life as well. Because we've all done something to deserve it. And so we go and the sea will take us. Not a moment sooner. He turned to me before he dove in. Something tells me you'll be here a while, Admiral. I sank to my knees and picked up a canteen with shaking hands. I upended it and the unpleasant film of salt water washed away. But the cotton-mouthed ache for water resurfaced as soon as it had run down my throat. I, I didn't know he was in the garage. I wouldn't have burned it down if I knew he was in the garage. Oh, no. I removed my life vest and slipped into the water, limp as a withered wheat stalk. I did not sink. My God, I did not sink. And so we drifted throughout the days and nights. Some of the men found comforting companionship as they had before. But instead of swapping tales of women and scars and dogs, they spun yarns from the fabric of their sins. Others spiraled into madness, becoming blithering messes who confessed everything they had ever done in hopes that the suffering would end. That was how the true marks of those among us were revealed. Thieves, arsonists, rapists, murderers, and worse. A man confessed to cannibalizing corpses on the battlefield when he was stationed in North Africa. A second said he had drowned his retarded infant in the bathtub because he wanted a kid who could play ball. Yet another had flown into a blind rage when an elderly couple refused to buy the life insurance he was selling, so he showed them the consequences of not owning a policy. We were a flotilla of the most depraved and sordid that mankind had to offer, armed to the teeth with wrongdoing and regret and shame. And the ways they went. Have you ever seen a man laugh as his entrails unspool 
muddying the water while a flurry of sharks tear through it like razor blades through paper daisies? How about a man who sits as calmly as one would in a dentist chair while gulls excise his eyes and tongue? Some went quietly, as quiet as they were about whatever it was that had caused them to drift. Life jackets and the rafts had long been foregone, and they would suddenly sink, the buoyancy of evil no longer holding them to suffer above the surface. I lost track of the days long ago, and I think the hours drag on longer than they were ever meant to. It's a peculiar sort of limbo I find myself in, and I really do mean myself. Viscus was right. I'm alone out here. He had spent much of the time floating on his back, looking up at the sky and not saying a word. It was fitting that it was just him and I at the end. The only remnant from my past life was my hatred for him, but it had been too blanched by the sun and salt. When the last man slipped beneath the surface, he said, Just you and me, Admiral? Yes. Why'd you want to frame me for murdering Father Bonnie so bad? Because you did. Guess it don't matter now. Matters to me, though, and to Father Bonnie, I guess. He looked me in the eyes, and I saw the hard truth. I was fiending for some liquor, and I did filch the wine. But when I hit Father Bonnie, he went down breathing. I remember that. He went down breathing, and he laid there breathing. An ember of my old hatred sparked into fiery new life. Breathing real slow. Probably put him in a coma. But a coma ain't dead, Admiral. Dead's a knife to the gut. He drank seawater and it shot out through the hole in his stomach like a surfacing whale. Can't quite say it was me who killed him then. That's on you. So that's my secret. What's yours? Who are you talking to on the radio? You killed him. Why do you think we're stuck out here? They never said I was a good man. All I said was I didn't murder the priest. That's on you. Shit, I'm still thirsty. So come on, Admiral. Who are you... The roar that ripped from my chest drowned out everything but the percussion of hate beating thickly between my ears. I thrashed towards Viscus, intent on tearing him apart, when a massive red tentacle rose from the water and pushed me back. It flailed through the air before it found Viscus and wrapped around him. The chitin-edged suckers impressed half-dollar-sized blood billets on his face and neck. At the edge of the darkness beneath us leered the yellow, vengeful eye of the giant squid. The tentacle tightened. Viscous's face turned purple and his eyes bulged. With the noose affixed, the trap door was sprung, except it was as if gravity had reversed. Viscous zipped away, flung headfirst down into the black below. My initial glee evaporated, and even at its paramount it felt hollow. I felt like a husk, like a papier-mâché mountain with all of its insides scooped out. Viscous was gone, but what could be worse than how he went? Well, that one's easy enough. Never leaving. I know why I'm the last one left. The deal was for capture at Hanoi, surrounded and bloodless. No one was supposed to die. Fucking viscous. Yamamoto must have heard my panic over the radio, the sharp inhale of my breath as I dropped the mic when he saw me. I should have seen it coming. But the Japs are a careful bunch, and I suppose a traitor cannot bemoan betrayal. I wonder if Aisha will find another man. And at what age Franklin will realize he doesn't look like his new father or the other boys at school. I wonder if she'll get a country house away from her tenement flat 
and a bank account full of yen for a new life like she was supposed to. Like we were supposed to. I say I did it because I believe that the war and the bomb were wrong, that the killing was wrong. But floating here with all the time in the world to lie to myself, I know I did it because I found some light in the middle of all the death and the blood and the darkness. Back when I was training as a junior officer on shore leave in a small town called Genoza in a small bar called Mingo Chu, smiling at her at the tail end of a war we all thought would never happen again faded into distant memory. I found the light then, and I swore I would come back to it at any cost. I wouldn't have killed the priest or tried to kill Viscous otherwise. But it wasn't just the priest, and it wasn't just Viscous either. Ending 1,200-odd lives is a lot of weight, and it's amazing that I don't sink. It's amazing that I can't die. But what's really amazing is that I'd do it all again, not even for Aisha, but for a glass of water. I'm so thirsty. In our final tale, we join a man suffering from loss who finds solace in religion. It helps him greatly, and even though he's relieved that his loved one is no longer in pain, that hasn't stopped him from feeling lonely grief. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ryan Peacock, we discover that alongside his newfound faith, this man is having strange, recurring dreams. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Mick Wingert, Sarah Thomas, and Dan Zapula. So find comfort and support where you can, because sometimes, once you look beyond the door, there's no looking back, and you'll find yourself declaring, I found God. I was relieved when I got the call that Patricia had died. Cancer is a cruel monster. It's not satisfied with just torturing its victim. It tortures those around them, too. Watching Patty wither away from the chemo, knowing we were just prolonging the inevitable, may have been worse than just letting her die. I felt guilty for heaving a sigh of relief when I hung up the phone. I cried tears of agony and tears of joy. My only comfort was that she'd gone peacefully in her sleep. There'd been no pain for her at the end. It was the best I could have hoped for. I used up my vacation days to grieve. I buried her with her family and with an empty plot by her side like we'd discussed. Then I took my time to mourn. We'd had 20 wonderful years together, and I didn't want to taint my memory of her by focusing on those final months. I won't lie, 
Misery filled every waking moment of my existence. I've never been much of a drinker, but I found myself at bars more and more often. Alcohol helped me sleep. And sleeping was better than being awake in a world without her. It was a week after I'd gone back to work, barely functioning, when Roy found me in a bar. Our relationship was based entirely on the occasional bouts of small talk neighbors have on the occasions that they saw each other. I knew Roy was a widower like me, a devout churchgoer, and nothing else. We weren't exactly friends, but when he saw me that day, still in my suit, he pulled up a chair beside me like we'd been best friends for decades. I raised my glass to him as he offered me a tired smile. Hey there, Sully. Still hanging in there? <sighs> as best I can. Trying to pick up the pieces and move on, you know? Roy rested his elbows on my table. Yeah, I know how that goes. You look like hell. I feel like it. I thought about not admitting it, but why not? Lying to him wasn't going to get me anywhere. I know what you're going through. It's not easy, and if I told you that a day goes by where I don't think about my Michelle, I'd be lying. This... This doesn't take away the pain. He gestured to the bar around us. Helps me sleep. I stared down at my whiskey. It was only my first double shot. On the rocks. It used to be only for special occasions. So does a good workout. But you're not on a treadmill right now, are you? You know, I never figured you for much of a drinker. And it pains me to see you sitting all by yourself like this. Take it from me. Loneliness is the worst thing a man in your position can have. Mix that with booze, and you've got a bad combination right there. You have a better idea? As a matter of fact, I do. I was thinking, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? I don't know if you're a religious man, but I think it might do you a bit of good. The good people there. The community really helped me after I lost my wife. And maybe some company might do you some good. I wanted to ask how church was going to help my misery. But listening to Roy's words, it did make me think. I'd never been too sure if I believed in a god or not. I always supposed that the thought of a benevolent power was more comforting than the thought of nothing being there. Just promise me you'll think on it, alright? Yeah, I promise. When I said it, I had no intention of going. Roy gave me a smile and patted me on the shoulder before waving over a waitress. He didn't leave like I'd expected him to. Instead, we had dinner together. Making small talk. It was nice. Maybe it was the fact that he'd stayed for some bar snacks, or maybe what he'd said about community helping him got to me. But on Sunday morning, I found myself waking up early and putting on some nice clothes. I hadn't been to church since I was a little boy, and I would have felt silly admitting I was nervous, but I kind of was. Roy's church was a little different than what I was used to. 
The droning sermons of the pastor I'd grown up with were replaced by a modest rock band and hymns. Pastor Sam spoke with the kind of fire I'd only seen on televised sermons from southern megachurches. But I got a feeling of sincerity from him. His message wasn't one of damnation and hellfire, but of salvation and love. I think it was what I needed to hear at the time. The next week, I found myself at church with Roy again, and the week after that, and the week after that. It became part of my weekly routine, and you know what? I started to enjoy it. The community was welcoming. They didn't pity me as a widower. They valued me as a broken man looking for somewhere to fit in. As the weeks crept by, I found myself smiling more often. I could laugh again. I joined the members of the congregation on their after-church brunch. I found out that, for all his godly conviction, Pastor Sam had one hell of a knack for a dirty joke. But most importantly, I made friends. I started to heal. The drinking stopped for the most part. I'd have something small during late-night gatherings, but I didn't need it to sleep anymore. I found myself sleeping more restfully without it. Often in my dreams, I'd see Patty. I'd replay some of our best memories together. She was as beautiful as she'd always been, her smile unchanged by the ravages of time. Sometimes I woke up with tears in my eyes. Other times, I woke up smiling. I can't pinpoint the exact dream that I started seeing the door in. I may have seen it in countless dreams before I really noticed it. The first time I remember it was in a dream where Patty and I were walking together towards the church. This one wasn't a memory. It was something that had never happened. Patty put her hand up on the church door, but instead of the brass art deco design I was used to, the door was different. Pale and rusted, like it belonged to a warehouse or something. She smiled at me. Come on, Sully. God is waiting. I reached out and placed my hand beside hers and opened the door. Then I woke up. After that, I saw the door almost nightly, never in the same place twice. Usually, I passed it by with barely a second thought. Every now and then, I would find myself reaching out to its cold metal handle. I never once saw what was on the other side. Each time, I woke up. It was strange, but I didn't worry too much about it. After all, it was just a dream. At least, it was until it wasn't. It was a particularly hot July that year. I'd figured I'd spend my weekend handling whatever household chores I could get around to. For starters, I planned on mowing the lawn. I'd run out to do some grocery shopping first and grab some fuel for the mower. The groceries were left on the counter. I took a bunch of bananas from one of the bags and ripped one off for a quick breakfast before I took the gas out to the shed. 
I was halfway across the yard when I stopped dead in my tracks. I'd built the wooden shed I kept my lawnmower in myself, so I knew damn well what it was supposed to look like. A rusting metal door with chipped pale paint was not it. At first I wondered if maybe it was just a trick of the light. Then I wondered if maybe some kid was pulling a prank on me. I slowly drew closer to the door, setting the gas can down beside me before I reached out to touch it. The metal was impossibly cold. The paint flecked away at my touch. Frowning, I opened the door to see if it at least functioned. It did. What was on the other side was not my shed. There was nothing on the other side. It wasn't just black. It was nothing. An absence of everything. I stared into that void, unable to explain what I was looking at for the longest time. And I felt beckoned. I had to go in. I should have known better. I'm sure in that moment my wits abandoned me outright, but I reached a hand forward into that void. It was cold. Like dipping your hand underwater. But it didn't hurt. I felt nothing else out of the ordinary. Curiosity won out over common sense. I stepped forward through the void and into the other side. I came out looking at the back of my house from the doorway to my shed. There had been no noticeable transition. I'd gone through the black and here I was in my backyard. Only, things were different. The grass seemed dry and wilted. The air felt colder, and the sky was pink, like the sun was setting. My breath made mist in the cool air as I looked back at the shed door. Through it, I could see my yard as it really was, as as it was supposed to be. But as for where I was standing, I had no explanation for any of it. The best I could say is that it was like a mirror reflection of the world I lived in, but different. Still curious, and since nothing necessarily bad had happened just yet, I walked towards my house, or at least what looked like my house. The brick looked a little more worn, the windows aged and dusty. The back door was unlocked. My house looked almost like I'd left it back on my side of the portal. I could even see the groceries I just bought on the counter. A bunch of bananas I'd bought sat brown and rotten by the bags. The flesh beneath the peel gave easily when I prodded it with my finger. I checked my fridge. No electricity. And the smell of all the rotted food made me close that pretty damn quickly. I made my way back outside, taking advantage of my elevated porch to survey the nearby houses in my suburb. There wasn't a sign of life anywhere. No birds, no animals. 
no people. I'd recalled hearing some kids a few doors down before, and I could see the worn old playhouse where they'd been on the other side of the portal. No sign of them on this side. I headed back towards the shed, where I could still see the glow of my world. As I reached the door, I saw movement out of the corner of my eye, on the roof of one of the nearby houses. I looked up at it, but saw nothing. For a few moments I stared, but the other world remained silent, save for the gentle whispering of the wind. I walked through the shed door again, and I returned to my world. Again, I was facing my house. The July heat was back. The kids from a few doors down yelled and screamed as they played. I was back. I looked back towards my shed and saw the familiar wooden door, closed and locked like it was supposed to be. That rusted metal door was gone. Googling it didn't turn up anything. If anyone else had ever experienced what I'd experienced, they either didn't talk about it, or I didn't look in the right places. It's hard to say which. In my dreams, the door was still there, lingering and ominous. As always, opening it woke me up, as if I couldn't understand what was on the other side while I was asleep. I honestly wondered if maybe I'd been dreaming when I'd gone through the damn thing in the first place. It was almost three weeks before I saw it again. But when I did, I knew damn well I was wide awake. I just finished a meeting at work about our monthly revenue goals. I could tell from the looks on my team's face that this was just an interruption to their actual workload, and so I tried to keep it brief. I got the feeling they appreciated that. I'd just gotten back to my office after getting a coffee and closed the door. I sat down behind my desk to get back to work when I saw it. Right where my office door had been was that rusted metal door. It sat there, almost like it was beckoning me, begging me to come through again. For the longest time, I could only stare, unsure whether or not I should go through. Finally, I rose to my feet and looked through the small window in my office. Outside, the people in their cubicles were distracted with their own jobs. Stacy from HR walked right past my window, and if she noticed the door, she gave no indication of it. I reached out to that cold metal handle again and opened it, finding the same infinite void. I didn't hesitate as long to step inside this time. The office complex was abandoned on the other side. The cubicles were dusty and in disrepair. There was no sign of disarray, just emptiness. I wandered through the empty cubicles towards the windows of our office space and looked down upon the empty streets. Cars sat abandoned in the middle of the road. There wasn't another soul in sight. The indifferent pink sky settled above it all, like an eternal twilight. Looking at the sky this time, 
I realized that there was no sun. It was pink and bright. But I couldn't tell where the light came from. It just... was. I looked up at the building adjacent to my own, wondering if maybe I could catch a glimpse through the windows and see if anybody else was inside. I squinted, and for the briefest moment, I saw movement. A loping quadrupedal gait flickered through the windows. I tried to track it with my eyes, but whatever it was, if it was anything at all, was gone as quickly as I'd seen it. I backed away from the window and looked back towards the door. It hung open, my office sitting on the other side. It occurred to me that this time was different than last time. Last time I'd come out facing the same way I'd gone in. This time, I'd gone through it like it was a regular door. Only I'd come out in the other world. I couldn't quite grasp the significance of that, but the detail didn't escape me. My explorations around the office space weren't particularly fruitful. The world around me was in a similar state of abandoned decay, and as fascinated as I was, staying there felt like trespassing. It was both intoxicating and terrifying at the same time. I might have stayed about a half hour or so before I decided to return to the door. The small part of me feared it wouldn't be there when I went back, but it was. I'd been about to go through when it dawned on me that I needed proof of this expedition. I stopped just outside the threshold and looked back at the cubicles behind me. On a whim, I reached out to grab a stapler off a nearby desk. It was rusted and worn, but it would have to do. With that, I stepped back through the door and back into my world. Just like before, the metal door was gone again when I looked back. My own office door sat there where it belonged. I opened it and stepped through, just in time to see Stacy from HR finish her walk down the hall and around the corner. I stared at where she had been. Had she come back? Or had no time at all passed since I'd gone through the door? A check of my watch implied the latter theory. My eyes wandered to the desk I'd taken the stapler off of. The rusted piece of equipment was solid in my hand, and I saw its counterpart, pristine and new on the desk where it belonged. I ducked back into my office before anyone noticed me and sat down at my desk, pondering the stapler and trying to understand what I'd just experienced. I came to a few uneasy conclusions. The door had some sort of connection to my dreams. After seeing it at work, it appeared every time I went to sleep. Interacting with it always caused me to wake up. I entertained the thought that the door was some sort of conduit between the waking and dreaming world, but the world has never been dilapidated or abandoned in my dreams. I wondered if it was some sort of subconscious thing. More solidly, I knew things could be brought back and forth between the other world and my world. Beyond that, I had precious few answers. 
and the notion of finding the door again both excited and terrified me. The latter mostly because I was worried I was crazy. I hadn't told anyone. Not yet. I wasn't entirely sure who to tell. As the week ended and Sunday rolled around, I sat in church beside Roy and listened to Pastor Sam speak about our divine destiny. He spoke about how God called us each into a unique path. My mind shifted to the door again. As the sermon ended and most of our little group got ready for brunch, I stood up and excused myself from Roy to approach the pastor up front. Good sermon today, Father. He smiled warmly at me. Sam was a younger man, barely 30, but he had the eyes of an old soul. Oh, I thought I'd mix it up a little. (laughs) (laughs) I was meaning to talk to you about something, though. Uh, listening to you speak today, it... It got me thinking. Do you think you have a moment? Of course I do. What's on your mind, Sully? You mentioned divine purpose. How it presents itself in all sorts of different ways. How there are different doorways to find it. it... Is it possible... To see those in your dreams? I felt stupid asking that. But the pastor didn't seem to share the sentiment. Of course. Dreams have always been a perfect medium for God to reveal his plan for you. I nodded and hesitated before continuing. Well, I suppose this will sound a little strange, but I've been seeing a door. The pews were about empty now. We were alone at the altar. In your dreams? I didn't want to tell him I'd seen it in real life, too. Yes. Every time I touch it, though, I wake up. The pastor thought on it for a while before heading towards the door with the rest of the congregation. I followed his slow, deliberate pace. It might mean you're not ready to see what's on the other side. Or it might be nothing at all. Dreams can be weird. Maybe... God is just telling you you're being called. Maybe what's on the other side of that door is important for you to see, and you need to seek it out for yourself. Maybe so. Uh, Thanks, Father. It wasn't a lot of help, but it did get me thinking. As soon as I got home from the brunch, I sat down on my couch and faced my front door. Pastor Sam had advised I seek the door out. But to my knowledge, I'd never seen a door like that before. The chipped paint matched no building I could remember. I know people usually don't remember every door they've ever gone through, but this one truly didn't seem familiar. After some thought, my mind went elsewhere. Maybe I didn't need to seek the door out physically. It seemed to just appear at random. But maybe... I could call it to me. I stared at my own front door thoughtfully, before imagining that rusted metal one in its place. I imagined the chipped paint, the cold touch. I focused as hard as I could, sitting there, 
and staring until I felt like an idiot. And for a moment, I was sure I really did see it. Staring intently, I stood up and took a few steps closer. I reached out, but by then, it was gone. I didn't stop trying, though. As the day went on by, I sat and watched my front door, clutching that rusted stapler that proved I wasn't crazy. Oftentimes, I could see it. Sometimes, I even got close enough to touch it. My head was starting to hurt, but I was sure I was making progress. I just needed to go back to that world. I just needed to summon that door. It was a day later that I was finally able to touch it, and that icy cold metal told me I had achieved my goal. I'd summoned the door to me. I stepped through it and outside my house into the other world, as empty beneath its pink sky as it had always been, as it always would be. Empty. Except for me. Summoning it got easier as I practiced. At work the next week, I would spend some time trying to bring the door forth. I never stayed long in the other world. Only long enough to confirm I'd done it. As Saturday came back around, I was able to summon the door with minimal effort. And having achieved that, I thought about what I'd do with this newfound ability. Pastor Sam had said that what was on the other side may have been important for me to see. If that was so... I wanted to see it. I had to see it. If God was calling me, it was my duty to answer. One night after work, I'd stopped off at a store to stock up on supplies. I needed to explore this place, and I'd stay there for as long as I needed to, until I knew why it had come for me. I went through the door for the last time on Sunday, after brunch. I'd wanted to wait and pray with my community for one last time before I went through. On the off chance, I didn't come back. I felt giddier as I shot the shit with Roy and Pastor Sam. If my understanding of the other world was right, they'd see me next week like nothing had happened. But I didn't know how long it would be for me until I saw them again. When I was home, I took my backpack full of food, water, and supplies, and then I summoned the door. Stepping out under that pink sky was soothing, and I looked around for some sort of heading on where to go. There was no wind, no life, only that chill in the air. I walked down the cracked and ruined sidewalk looking for purpose. In a few short minutes, I'd gone further in the other world than I'd ever been before. Its deathly silence unnerved me, but I pressed on. As I walked, I caught glimpses of movement in my peripheral vision. It was easy to dismiss at first, but it never stopped, and as it kept happening, it grew harder and harder to ignore. I was being followed, 
Had I always been followed when I was here? I recalled seeing that loping figure on my second visit, and having thought I'd seen something on the roof of the house during my first. These creatures following me seemed to move on all fours, and kept their distance. I stopped for a moment, and could have sworn I heard whispers. They didn't get any closer. In between the narrow gaps of a fence across the street, I saw one of them moving. Were they afraid of me? My need to know was overpowering. I had to draw them out, and as I waited, I came up with a plan. I'd brought some pepperoni sticks for my journey, and broke one in half, leaving it on the sidewalk where I stood before moving on. I headed towards one of the abandoned houses, glancing back frequently before I tried the door. It was unlocked. I went inside, and then I watched through the windows. My plan had worked. Shortly after I'd left, I watched something climb down from behind the roof of a nearby house. It moved slowly and cautiously, long slender limbs dragging it forward before it dropped down into the dry grass. It moved like a spider, low to the ground and creeping. It was so dark I couldn't make out any distinguishing features. I had to get closer. I crept towards the door of the house I was hiding in. A few more of those creatures had emerged, studying the dropped piece of meat. Slowly, they opened the door and studied them. They were distracted for now and didn't notice me coming out again. My footsteps were silent as I drew near to the closest one that had climbed down off the roof of the house I'd been hiding in. Up close, it seemed almost human. The body shape was right. Human fingers splayed on the ground in front of it. The only major difference was the skin and hair. The creature was bald, and its skin was so impossibly black, it seemed almost burnt. I stopped in my tracks, looking at this thing. I didn't understand how something could seem so human, and yet so bestial at the same time. I looked up to see another one of those creatures, perched on top of a roof, staring right at me. Its bright yellow eyes glowing. Immediately, all of them turned their heads to me and made the exact same cry. Almost like a warning. They scattered like cats putting as much distance between me and themselves as they could. They glared hatefully, dark teeth bared as they watched me with suspicion. The world suddenly went dark for an instant, like someone had fumbled with a light switch, but the change was enough to startle me. The creatures recoiled more, their attention shifted from me to the sky. I too looked up into that great pink sky. It darkened. Not all at once. Two great shadows came from both sides of the horizon and met in the middle, momentarily blanketing that world in a complete and horrifying darkness. Then just like that, the light returned. 
It grew from the middle, chasing the two shadows back down to the horizon. I stared up into the sky in awe. It wasn't a sky. It was an eye. Great and terrible, belonging to something so unfathomably vast that watched this world with disinterest. But though that great eye had no pupil, in that moment I could feel its penetrating glare flay me down to my very soul. It was looking at me. At everything I was. At everything I'd ever be. And beneath its gaze I felt petrified. The creatures looked to me now, focused intently on me. They knew I didn't belong here. They knew their overlord, their god, had singled me out. I ran. They chased. My feet stumbled as the creatures pursued me. Their loping, clumsy gates weren't built for speed. Were I a younger man, maybe I might have stood a chance of outrunning them. But my age and my fear hobbled me. One of those things leapt onto my back, human fingers gripping at my backpack. I shed it to keep myself alive. I didn't care about my supplies, I just wanted to escape. The creatures seemed to multiply with every second. More and more of them emerged from the shadows. How had I not seen them before this? Dear God, they were everywhere. I couldn't return home. I could see more of the creatures coming from down the street. To go home would have been to run straight into their arms. Instead, they took off towards the church. In this hell, I hoped the house of God might offer protection. Even if I hadn't been the most faithful in my life, I had nowhere else to turn. The church wasn't far, and I must have made it there in record time. I burst through the doors, slamming them behind me and pressing my body against them to stem the massive tide of horrible creatures that pursued me. I fumbled to find a lock on the doors, and to my infinite fortune, there was one. With the doors locked, I fell back onto the floor, watching as the creatures arrived and pressed themselves against the glass. Up close, I could see their faces. Oh god. Those faces. They looked human, but were twisted in looks of horrific agony. Tears stung my cheeks as my terror overwhelmed me. If this was some sort of calling from God, why would he send me to such a horrific place? Through the window, behind the twisted beasts, I saw the endless pink sky pulling back, going further and further away. At its corners was a darkness I could not comprehend. And behind the terrible shape of the great deity, void. I am thankful for that void, since it meant I didn't have to see the shape of that horrible thing above this wretched earth. But whatever it was made the vaguest of movements as it reached out to me. The earth shook violently. 
Some of the twisted beasts recoiled and fled. This was not a good sign. Those that remained watched me silently, and I could have sworn I heard them laughing. For a moment, the air was thick with painful anticipation. I crawled away from the windows and into the chapel. Even in the strange light from the accursed being that ruled this place, the chapel was still bright enough that I could see the world around me. I heard the cackling of the beasts outside, and the earth beneath me trembled. I needed to get out of there. I looked back towards the chapel door and tried to imagine that metal door. I had never done this from inside the other world, but I was desperate. Through the stained glass windows, twisted shapes writhed in the dim light. It broke my focus and distracted me. Those awful shapes pressed up against the glass until it cracked little by little. No. No, whatever that thing was, it couldn't enter the house of God. No. 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 The glass cracked, and what came through resembled a tentacle. It was thick and rotten, trailing a black goose wherever it went that stained the dusty carpet. Other windows shattered, allowing in more tendrils. They poured through in droves, feeling around blindly for me near the front of the chapel. One of the thicker ones swept the altar aside, rendering it down to nothing more than splintered wood. The tendrils reached up towards the cross. They curled around the depiction of Jesus Christ, squeezing it impossibly tight before tearing it in two. Tentative beasts crawled into the chapel on the tendrils. Their yellow eyes were fixated on me. Their twisted human faces looking no less horrified. I fell down and tried helplessly to crawl away, glancing at the chapel door, pointlessly hoping to see the metal door in its place. One of the beasts drew nearer to me, emerging from the pack above the rest. In the dim light of that horrible god, I can make out the twisted face on its dark skin. My heart stopped dead in my chest. I had kissed those lips a thousand times. I would have recognized that voice anywhere. I knew her. I knew my Patricia. Patty looked at me with her yellow eyes. Her face was contorted into an awful scream. But I knew her. I would have known her anywhere. Sally. That voice was hers, but only barely. Her throat sounded shredded, and her voice came out as a garbled whisper. Help me. The tendrils behind her writhed and twisted, seeming to flex. Some of them pulled back, ripping away the ceiling of the church and exposing nothing but that black void above. In the distance, were what I first thought to be stars. 
Kruger realized all too soon, the pink lights were the countless eyes of the great god of this damp place. The only god. One of the tendrils wrapped around Patty's body and ripped her up into the sky. The church's walls collapsed and the earth crumpled. In only a matter of seconds, Patty was gone again. Vanished into the void along with countless more of those beasts taken up towards their deity by its tendrils. And all at once, I heard it. The sound that will never leave me. The infinite crunch of bones. The screams of the dead that echoed through the void forever. Tears streaming down my cheeks. I watched as the remaining tendrils reached out for anything they could grab. Outside the church, I saw them reaching down from the sky to take more of those beasts to appease its unending hunger. I tried to crawl, and up ahead of me, at last I could see the metal door finally summoned forth. I fumbled with the cold metal to open it, and as it yielded, I foolishly looked back at the nightmare being behind me. I looked at God. Then, I crawled through that doorway, and I slammed it shut behind me. Pastor Sam died in the church collapse that day. No one knows what caused it. No one except for me. Roy walked with me tiredly as we exited his funeral. He's in a better place now. He would have told us to rejoice. Death ain't the end. It isn't. But that's no reason to rejoice. I've had time to think about what I saw. I don't sleep much anymore. And on the occasions where I see the door, I don't go near it. Not even when I hear the desperate scratching at the other side. No. Death isn't the end. But I wish that it was. for joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. 
please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 